You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. In 1987, HBO had a comedy special called Women of the Night. It featured four women who were known regionally and at certain comedy clubs, but had yet to really reach a national audience. They were Ellen DeGeneres, Paula Poundstone, Rita Rudner, and today's guest, Judy Tenuta. In fact, for the next four years, each of these women would be named the best female stand-up comic at the American Comedy Awards. So in the 1980s and 90s, Judy was a part of a big boom for women in comedy. She branded herself as the love goddess and starred in national commercials, published her first book, and received Grammy nominations for her comedy albums. And if you've seen the movie Waiting for Guffman, one of my all-time favorite films, you'll notice a certain Judy Tenuta t-shirt worn by the lead character, Corky St. Clair. But her introduction to the stage was actually as an actress, and in college she majored in theater. In today's episode, we'll talk about her transition from plays and musicals to stand-up comedy, as well as her long-standing connection with the LGBTQ community. But first, she shares with us the cancer diagnosis she received during the height of the COVID pandemic. But as the Aphrodite of the accordion, she hasn't let that stop her. And this past New Year's Eve, she released a music video called Kicking Cancer's Ass. (laughs) It is in perfect keeping with her campy and offbeat persona that has made Judy Tenuta one of the most unique comedians and performers of her generation. Buckets. I'm Judy Tenuta, the love goddess, petite flower, and Aphrodite of the accordion. And I live in beautiful Hollywood Suffer. Yeah, that's where I live. I am a comedian love goddess, and I try to bring joy to people and happiness and maybe a little bit of song. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a Top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years. I talk with professional creatives each week about their own personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons that we can all learn from. For more information and to learn about how you can support this podcast, go to whyillnevermakeit.com. In this episode, you may notice the audio quality isn't quite up to Winmi's usual standard, but Judy is a wonderful guest and more than makes up for it with her inspiring tenacity and comedic flair. Welcome, Judy. It is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. This is really an honor to be able to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. First things first. Happy to be alive. Oh. I have uh, followed you since the 80s or 90s, and so it's really just a joy to have you here to talk about not just your comedy, but your whole life, and this would be really fun. Now, the first story that we'll get into is certainly the pandemic has been devastating to us all, but it's really hit us performing artists quite hard. And um, during COVID, one of your biggest things is that you discovered you had ovarian cancer. Was there any warning signs of this illness or did it come as a complete shock to you? Well, uh, first and foremost, I do have a very strong, um, 
I have a high tolerance level. So if, if I got a little pain, I also don't forget we were in the pandemic. So I was not really uh, uh, geared toward going to a doctor. However, I didn't feel badly. I Once in a while, I would get a little flutter, you know, like a little flutter on my left-hand side. But then starting in, I want to say, um, January of 2021, I started getting, it was getting worse. So I said to my boyfriend, "We, I better go to the doctor. I better find out. But then I delayed it a little. I, I couldn't go in February because I had something else. So I went in March. And then... And of course, the first thing I thought, I didn't even think of the giant C word. I thought, oh, you know, I probably have a kidney stone or something like that because my brother had had one. Anyway, so I talked to my GP and she said, yes, you do have a kidney stone. And then they they looked further at the, uh, I don't know if it's the MRI or whatever. And they go, and then I want you to go see the oncologist. So when they say oncologist, you know what that means. So, but I still uh, was being positive about it. I go, well, they don't know exactly. So I, I went in there with my boyfriend, which which was a, you, you really need to have someone with you when you're doing that, if you can. And um, I was just shocked to find out. I said, doctor, I'm healthy. He goes, I know you're healthy otherwise, but look at this, look at the x-ray. Okay, do you see, do you see this? This is, I go, oh my God. And so I had a little cry and then I snapped out of it. And I say, he said, don't you worry. We are gonna take good care of you. This is the program we're gonna start first. You're gonna start with, in, in a few weeks, you're gonna get chemo, chemotherapy. You're gonna have one session of that and it'll last, uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like a five hour thing, right? So I'm there for five hours. And then, uh, and then uh, I think it was like four weeks later, I got another one. And then four weeks after that, uh, which would be around the end of June, uh, they did surgery. So with all of this, when, when you first heard it, did it feel like it was a death sentence or, or was there hope that you could beat it? I never think of that. I, that. No, I do not let myself think of that. I said to the doctor, if you know what stage it is, I don't want to know because I don't want to have that hanging over me so that I'm scared and I'm getting negative. No, I'm just thinking I am getting healed. I am being healed. I have great doctors. I have God on my side. I have people who pray for me, mm -hmm. you know, and plus I have my caregiver, my, you know, my boyfriend took great care of me, took, brought me to all of my appointments, everything. So I just looked at it like, I'm not going, okay? That's it. So um, anyway, uh, no, I just stayed positive as much as I could. And uh, it got tough when I started getting the treatments, the, the uh, chemo. At first, it was a little strong for me. So I, I, you know, I got sick, but then the doctor adjusted it immediately and I got much better, but it still, you know, it takes a toll on you. For those of us, obviously, most of us haven't gone through this. What exactly does it mean that you feel sick or just don't feel well? well I, I was throwing up. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. Uh, but that lasts for maybe a day, but it's, 
you know, you don't feel good. So the next day I would still not have much of an appetite, but the doctor kept saying to me, you got to drink water or tea or something. Most important thing is that you have to drink water or like stay hydrated. So as hard as that was, because it was hard to do, I did it. And, um, and then I would go in for hydration too, because I needed extra hydration. So, um, you know, it's, it's just tough. It's tough, but I'm, I am also one tough cream puff. (laughs) That's true. I am not giving into this bitch. Okay. So, uh, you know, I fought and fought and, and then, uh, I went in for the surgery. (laughs) I have a fantastic surgeon, Dr. Cohen, bless you. And also my oncologist, Dr. Alcantar. Okay. So Dr. It was so great. I I went in for the surgery and I had no idea what was going on because I come out of it and and I felt like they were all looking at me, the doctors and nurses, and they're all kind of looking at me. And I go, why are you looking at me like that? And they're like, well, you know, you were in a long surgery and we had to give you some blood. And I go, well, I don't know what you're talking about. But you guys have great drugs. I feel fabulous. (laughs) So so they were all clapping. So it was a good surgery for you. Well, yes. You know, listen, they can do so much. I honestly, uh, and I read a lot about other people who had stage four and other things. And, you know, you just have to fight and be positive and have great doctors are important. During this cancer journey for you, what would you say has been the the lowest point and how did you get yourself out of it? Yeah, when I got sick, because when you get sick, it's very hard to stay positive. You're so busy trying to get your body back up, you know, and and it was tough. It was tough, but, you know, I I prayed. I got I people prayed for me. People called me. You know, I got I rested a lot. You have to rest a lot. And, um, and I just, you know, I said, you know, this will pass. I'm going to get better. I'm getting better. That's great. Now, many comedians, they like to take issues or challenges from their own life, turn them into comedy. How has ovarian cancer <laughs> inspired your comedy? You know, I'm musical, right? So I, I, th- I people were asking how was I, I was, and I was saying, I'm kicking cancer's ass, I'm kicking cancer's ass, I'm licking it, I'm kicking it, I'm kicking cancer's ass. I did it not only for me, but all of those who are going through it and their relatives and friends who are with them and going through the journey as well. You know, so it was very great for me and also for people watching it. So I made the video, Kicking Cancer's Ass. I'm kicking cancer's ass. I'm kicking cancer's ass. Everyone who's got it is kicking cancer's ass. I'm kicking cancer's ass. I'm kicking cancer's ass. We're whipping it. We're licking it. We're kicking cancer's ass. And so have you heard from fans or other people reaching out to you saying how much it meant? Oh, yeah. The the most important thing is hearing from people. Here's what's important. Hearing from people you don't expect to hear from. Now, now let me say on the other side of that, I had people that I thought were my good friends and they just kind of, a couple of them just disappeared. But I say, I bless and release you. You are not worthy. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. And then people that I wasn't, like I got a, a phone call from from people I haven't heard from in 
you know, like 15 years or something. And it was really wonderful. And then, you know, as well as my good friends would call. and But then others that I thought were good friends, they just kind of, they straddled off. But that's okay. The people that I wasn't expecting, like I got, I get a call maybe once a month from Kathleen Madigan, a fellow comedian. And she, you know, uh, always calls to cheer me up. And I'm, I'm always kind of cheerful anyway. And we were just laughing about things, you know. So going forward, do you see yourself eventually getting back on the road and, no. and doing other things? No, or what no. do you see? I don't want to. <laughs> You're done with that life. You see what they're doing to people on airplanes to these poor flight attendants? They're beating them up. I don't want to be with these savages. No, I will continue. If, if, if it's a great, listen, you know, if you get such a fantastic offer, you can't turn it down, then of course I'll make it work. But I am not going on an airplane to Bofunk Blowland, you know, while the <laughs> flight attendants getting beat up by drunk people. You know, I'm not doing that. So, but usually, uh, I, I must say on my flights, I haven't had in the past, but you read about all this now and I just, I just feel for them and I don't want to be in that, you know. No that, no, that makes sense. And as far as L.A., have there been other either performing opportunities or events for you to take part of there? Well, for example, I'm going to be doing a, um, which I really love doing charities. I'm doing a charity for the Shriners Hospital. So I'm going to present an award as well as this I'm very excited about. I'm going to be raffling off a doctor. It was my idea. I said, look, I'm going to bring a doctor up. I'm going to get bids on him. Where do we start the bidding? You know, now what do they win with their bid? Well, they get to go to lunch with the doctor. And of course, the doctor pays. So and then, you know, <laughs> of course, so, so that'll be, that'll be <laughs> nice, won't it? So, yeah, I'm doing that. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to do that because it's, you know, the Shriners was instituted for children with polio. So it's all for children, which I always is close to my heart, women and children, and the uh, LGBT community, anybody who needs help, I'm, I wanna help, you know? That's wonderful. Yeah, I've been giving to Shriners Hospital for a few oh. years now, so they, they mean a lot to me as well. So oh. I'm, I'm glad that you're taking part in that. Well, I wanted to take uh, a step back a few years and talk about your initial entrance into performing and you went to the University of Illinois in Chicago and were studying theater at yes. first. Yes. You did eventually uh, transition into stand up, but but what what kind of actress did you originally want to be? What stage work inspired you? Well, you know, I, in, in in university I I did all kinds of things. I did comedy. I did uh I was in Rosencrantz and Dil, uh, Guildenstern are dead. Uh, uh Once Upon a Mattress. Uh Oh my goodness! Um, just, just, just a lot of things like that. Oh, oh, the lower depths was just really heavy. You know, I'm like, ah, yeah. oh, I really prefer not to do that because it's draining. You know, but uh, it's okay. It, it's all a learning experience. Everything, in fact, is a learning experience. So you have to look at it as that. Um, and but it was very helpful. And then I realized when I graduated, I wanted to go to New York, which I did, I thought, oh, good, I'm going to do what Goldie Hawn did and go to these auditions. And you know, Yeah, well, it's not that easy. You go to an audition yeah. and there's 500 girls, that, you know, and I go, well, this sucks. I, what are the odds that you're going to get a part 
with, you know, a hundred other girls in there. I go, you know, I, I, so my friend said, my roommates, you know, Judy, you're so funny. You, cause I can imitate people. Uh, they go, why don't, why don't you just do your own act? So I did, I did. I made that up and I went back to Chicago cause I couldn't afford to live in New York anymore. Well, yeah. Cause you lived in Chicago and it's its own theater town. What made you want to go to New York rather than stay in Chicago? Because it, you 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 know even at that young age I knew if you wanted to make it you either have to go to New York or L.A. And the reason I chose New York it's closer and you don't need to drive. I don't want to drive, and you can take any public transportation. So I really appreciated that, and I learned so much, and I just loved it really. But but then you came back to Chicago. Oh yes, and that. I was yeah. very lucky because at the time in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, they had all these comedy clubs opened up. So I was able to go and, you know, do my do my show, make it up and keep practicing. And it, yeah, it was great. So you had grown up in Chicago with a large family, mother, father, you had eight siblings. So was your family supportive of, of you being on stage and pursuing that kind of life? Well, so, so, you know, to begin with, I didn't really hear myself speak growing up in a big, loud family until I graduated high school and went to, went to the University of Illinois where I majored in theater. And, uh, you know, I go, oh, wow, when you're on stage, people listen to you. So I, I decided I needed to do that. And um, and then, but by, by the way, don't get me wrong. I loved my childhood. I, I really did. I had a lot of fun. You know, we I, I want to give credit to my parents who uh, they were uh, they were strict. And that's a good thing. Nowadays, I see parents, they feel they have to give in to their kids. No, you're the boss of the kid. The kid needs the kid needs guidelines or they're going to be all over the place. So I'm structure. Right. I'm so grateful to my parents for saying, Judy, you want that accordion? You have to practice. Well, when I was eight years old, I didn't really know what that meant until my mom said, Judy Lynn, get in this house and you're playing the accordion. You can play with your friends later. And, you know. I, I had to do it. So it was, I was very grateful for that. Was the accordion part of your act from the beginning since you knew how to play it from a childhood? Yeah, well, see, here's what happened is I really felt like it was, my parents are Polish and Italian. So I always felt like they were taking it a hit out on themselves. And <laughs> when I, when I was born, I felt like I popped out wearing the squeeze box. So, you know, it was like my mom's IUD, but it didn't work very well because she had nine kids. Oh, my God. I'm so glad she was strict with me and my dad, too. I love them both so much. Um, and so I send blessings to them and everyone. You don't realize until you're growing up how much they sacrificed for me. I was a little girl. I would do these concerts every single time. I had a beautiful dress that my mom and dad, you know, that couldn't have been easy for them. They had eight other children. You know, so I love them to death. They were just the best. And and also it's very important for children, I feel, to have music, something like that. Any kind of music is so important in your life. Yeah, for me growing up, it was musical theater. That was really where I got my start on the stage. So musical theater is what I But love. you needed you need that. It's 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 a wonderful outlet. We all need that. And me too. I needed the, the musical theater, all kinds of theater. So um yeah, it's very important for children to have that, to have an outlet, whatever it may be. And so I really encourage that. And also um uh I, I wanna say to people. <laughs> 
Also, people that in, in recovery, I'm in recovery, I'm getting better and better, but I just want to say thank you to everyone who writes to me and prays for me. It all means the world. For those of you who have fallen behind, I, I bless and release you. Okay, bye-bye. But, you know, there's other people that say, but listen, don't be afraid. Here's here's what I want to tell people. When you find out that some someone you know, even if you don't know them that well, is sick, hey, even if you just text and say, hey, I am in your corner, you're going to beat this, or I am thinking of you, you are going to, you know, whatever you can say to be encouraging. Because so many people think you're going to ask them for something. I'm not asking you to, to look. It's all about just positivity, just encouraging people to stay well, to be strong, you know? It's all about connection. It's all about maintaining a connection with other people and just feeling that support. That's all it needs to be. Yeah, you got, and like I said, it's not like I'm expecting you to come over and bring me a pizza and dance or something. (laughs) You know, I don't expect that. I mean, (laughs) it would be nice, but no, but it is very important to have a caregiver. I want to give blessings to my boyfriend who takes the best care of me. And then I have other special, a circle of friends who always check on me, which is great. It's, it's important. I too would like to take a moment to thank those who support this podcast. Because of your giving, I was actually able to get this episode transcribed. Now, there's obviously a whole back catalog of episodes still to go, but one by one, they will be done with your help. Now, you can choose between a one-time donation or a monthly subscription to help offset the cost of this important service. Just go to whyillnevermakeit.com and see the ways you can donate through PayPal or subscribe to bonus episodes on Supercast. Whichever way you choose, your help is so very much appreciated. The final story I wanted to talk about is your connection with and advocacy for the LGBTQ community. And they, they have certainly been the subject of your comedy throughout the years. You know, your, your Grammy nomination, in fact, your first one was for your comedy album, Attention Butt Pirates and Lesbitarians. So do you see comedy as, as a way of bringing attention to and also acceptance of the gay community? Oh, yes, very much so. Listen, when I first started out, I started out in a regular comedy club, and I'll never forget there were two people that came in and really wanted to talk to me. And they said, Judy, we have a club. It's called his and hers. And it's, it's for gay people. And we would love to have you. And I came and they were just all so, you know, you know, joyful and so happy to see me. I, you know, so I, you know, I love to give to people who in return give to me. So uh, I, I always love the gay community. I always, whether you're, but I will say, you know, I, I love everyone. You know, so whoever supports what I do and, and and in return, I love them. And but the gay community, yes, very much so, whether you're a gay man or woman, trans, bi, whatever it is, just people that are good people. I don't care if what your sexual persuasion is. I care how you treat me and, and vice versa. You know, well, well going back to, to that strict childhood that you had, you grew up Catholic. Yes, nuns. Right, Woo-hoo! which has its own view on homosexuality. Is your comedy like a way of rebelling against that or opening it up? A little, 
A little bit. I, I, I want, you have to remember, I went to Catholic school for 12 years, but I am very grateful to the nuns for, I have excellent grammar. I, but to me, that's very important. When I hear people say things, ah, this is a part of Judaism. You've got to have good grammar. Oh my God, I would get people who have run, hey, Judy, I seen you. Ah, no, you have not seen, you have seen me, not I seen you. Do not, ah, it's such a sacrilege. <laughs> or how about, yeah, him and I. Ah, no, you just stop it. Come on, there's no excuse for that. You should have proper English usage. No, I've, I've always been a stickler for grammar myself when, when it comes to, to writing or speaking. Well, and also what you know, no, you know, we in, in the United States are very spoiled because in every, every other country, they speak at least two languages. We should have been taught already in this country to speak Spanish because we uh, look at how many, you know, Latino c- come on. Right. It's not fair that, you know, we should be we should be taught in school at least to speak that as well. OK. I mean, in California here, I learned to speak because I have a gardener who speaks, you know, but I mean, I don't speak it as fluently and, and you should have that and because my God, you go to Europe. When I went to Europe, I was 19 years old and I couldn't get over. I'm in Paris. They're speaking English, French, and, and probably one other language, like probably it, German or something else, right? Or uh, Italian or something. Mm-hmm. But you know that, like, come on. So in the United States, they should make it. It should be part of the curriculum. Not only do you speak English, but they should teach uh, Spanish. Because come on, look at how many Latinos, right? Right. Now, now, with the travels that you did in Europe, certainly as as a comedian, did you ever have to alter your your comedy stylings for the different countries or cultures? Well, you know, whatever you do, yes, whatever you're doing, you try to personalize it. There is, of course, a structure that I have. So I'm going to hit this point, this point, this point. It's how I do it. Maybe some points I won't do because it doesn't apply. You know, it may not apply. but. you know, in general, I have, uh, you know, a structure that I, that I'm going to hit, you know, I have like, as they would say, an outline, so to speak. I know what I'm going to do, but things happen. Like I remember I was doing a show in Seattle and (laughs) I will never forget, I'm doing my show. All of a sudden, this woman comes up, a lovely woman. I would say, you know, at the time I was in my, oh, I don't know, late thirties. And, uh, this woman is walking straight up on stage. She comes right up, puts her arms around me with the accordion and kisses me. <laughs> well, I, that's not, I guess you like my show. Oh, Judy, I really love you. I go, okay, thank you. Now, could you please go sit down? <laughs> it's hilarious. You never, but you know, the audience got a big kick out of it. I bet they did. I bet they did. One last question here about your stage work. You've not just done comedy, but you've also done theater, of course, going oh, back yes. to your roots. You've done Menopause, the musical, and oh, the vaginal yeah. monologues. What what was it like going back to those kind of theater acting roots? Well, I loved it because I did both of those shows, not only in L.A., but also in my hometown of Chicago. So it was really great. And I got to work with people like uh, Don Wells and, um, oh, gee, who else? But, yeah, just a great you know, it's, it's, it was, it was really great, really wonderful. I love any, anything like that. 
And they let me improvise too with my accordion. And so it made it really- Well, I would hope so, right. It was really special. So I- I really loved it. I, I it was it was really great. Any experience that I had on stage, I want to give so much thanks for all of that and and uh, for I, listen. I opened for George Carlin. I got to work with Joan Rivers. I adore her. Uh, also, I want to tell anyone, whatever children, especially young people, whatever it is you're going into, study all the people before you whatever, you know, like here in comedy, I, I couldn't believe there's people that are a little younger than me and they don't even know who, they don't know who Buster Keaton is. Shut the hell up. Shut up. That's your job. You need to know Mae West, you know, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, you know, all the great. And then, then you go into George Carlin. And, and for me, it was Steve Martin who really, he was just mm. out there. And Joan Rivers, Phyllis, are all these wonderful people. That brings up one show that you got to do, an HBO special with Ellen DeGeneres, Paula Poundstone, Rita Rudner, and that was early in all of your careers. I, I'm, that must have been a thrill to be on stage with them. Oh, well, it was, well, we didn't know. We weren't famous yet. <laughs> right. We just were having fun. I mean, we were a little well-known in certain areas, but then after that, my God, I'd walk down the street and people go, it can happen. You know, I mean, it, it, it was just great. You know, it was just awesome. Uh, I, anything that I can do to make someone's life happier through my comedy, that's what I want to do. So, yeah, it was a joy. It was a it was a, an honor. It was everything wonderful. I was so happy to do that. Yes. Well, I am so happy that you came on the podcast. And it's been a joy that you've been able to share some of your story and, and life experiences. So I greatly appreciate this time. Well, thank you. And me too. And thank you so much. And you were a lovely host. And I hope that it, whatever it does, it encourages people to, to try to be up whatever you're fighting. Just just try to be positive and you're gonna you're gonna beat it. You're gonna win. It can happen. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining Judy and myself today. You'll find a link to her Kicking Cancer's Ass video in the show notes. Now, I'd also like to thank one particular listener. On February 28th, a five-star review was left on Apple Podcasts from RRRRR6262. <laughs> that is quite a mouthful. And the review says, Win Me Rocks. Always look forward to another Win Me interview, and this week is truly inspiring. I like the three-story format. It gives the guest the time to be thoughtful and give details of his experience. Patrick has a way of encouraging his guests and shows empathy and love through and through. Kudos. Well, thank you so much for that kind review, and I believe the episode you're referring to is the one with Teron Brooks, which came out that day. I do agree with you that I think this three-story format is a good change for the podcast and it gives guests a better chance to share those experiences and insights. Now, if you have something you'd like to say about the podcast, I'd be happy to read that five-star review as well in an upcoming episode. Well, that about does it for me. As always, I am your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Hartman. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. 
and is a production of WinMe Media. Join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.